Hello, and welcome back to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 20. So we're going to be going back over the pond to Ireland, and we're going to start in the late 1800s. Of course, we're covering another infamous case. Uh, So today's episode is on Kate Webster. Now, the murder of Julia Martha Thomas by her maid, Kate Webster, was one of the most infamous and heinous murders committed in 19th century England. In her 40s or 50s, depending on the source, uh, Julia Thomas was a widow who lived in Richmond in southwest London. Now, she made one really unfortunate mistake when she didn't check Kate Webster's background before hiring her and wasn't aware of her extensive criminal record. Like usual, let's start at the very beginning. So Catherine Lawler was born in 1849 to modest parents in Killane County, Wexford in Ireland. She's repeatedly caught stealing as a young girl and gained an unfavorable reputation for dishonesty. So she took some money in her early teens, uh, probably stolen, and uses it to buy a ticket to Liverpool. And Kate will live off her wits and what she could steal for the next several years. She even attempts to become a pickpocketer, but ends up failing quite miserably. And at the age of 18, she's given her first prison sentence for four years. So Kate is going to adopt the name Webster as her last name, one of her numerous aliases. She'll also claim to have wed a sea captain with the same name who fathered four children with her. Now, given her propensity for lying and her claims that the captain and all of her children had died, it's very questionable whether they even really existed. So after Kate's uh, freed from jail, she's going to travel to London and she'll obtain work as a charwoman and earn a little additional money by prostitution. It doesn't take long for her to get pregnant and eventually give birth to a baby boy. But after that, she decides she needs a new scheme and she won't go back to pickpocketing. So her new ruse is to start robbing boarding houses. Before fleeing the scene, Kate would rent a room and sell everything she could get her hands on before leaving. And this worked okay, but for the next several years, she's often detained and given brief prison terms. She is even condemned to Wandsworth in 1875 for a period of 18 months. Now, Kate has left her small son in the care of a friend, Sarah Creese, and it's during one of her prison terms in West London when uh, her friend suggests to Kate that there's a woman she knows who's looking for a servant. And this would be the start of a very unfortunate relationship. According to Vintnowski for mentalfloss.com, Kate's hired, but Mrs. Thomas and the young woman's relationship deteriorate pretty quickly. Kate said, quote, at first I thought her a nice old lady, uh, yet she just couldn't comply with Thomas's demanding excessive cleaning standards. Thomas would point out places where she said Kate didn't clean and, quote, showed evidence of a nasty spirit towards me. Thomas was also unimpressed by Kate's love of alcohol, and Kate routinely nursed her indulgence at a neighboring bar called The Hole in the Wall. 
After only about a month of employment, uh, Thomas notes in her notebook on February 28th that she had, quote, given Catherine warning to go. And Thomas makes a terrible error by giving Kate this amount of notice. And throughout the period, it uh, seems that Mrs. Thomas grows quite afraid. She even begins inviting family members and friends from her church to stay with her in her home. But by the time the 28th came around, Kate begs Mrs. Thomas to let her stay in the home just over the weekend because she hadn't yet been able to secure new employment or housing. And tragically, Thomas will agree to this, a choice that ultimately results in the death of both women. On Sunday morning, March 2nd, 1879, Thomas goes to attend church as usual. And Kate is permitted to take the afternoons off on Sunday, but she had to return in time for Mrs. Thomas to attend evening services. On this particular Sunday afternoon, Kate goes to see her son, who, as usual, is being looked after by uh, her friend Sarah Kreese, before she decides to head to the pub and then return back to the house. As a result, she arrives back late, which annoys Thomas, who reprimands her once again before racing out to make it in time for the church service. Several members of the congregation will note that Thomas did seem quite irritated this evening, but unfortunately she didn't think to invite anyone to accompany her back home when she left before the service was even finished. And according to Webster's eventual confession in O'Donnell's book, The Trial of Kate Webster, Mrs. Thomas came in from church and went upstairs. I went up after her and we had an argument, which ripened into a quarrel. And in the height of my anger and rage, I threw her from the top of the stairs to the ground floor. She had a heavy fall and I became agitated at what had occurred, lost all control of myself. And to prevent her screaming and getting me into trouble, I caught her by the throat and in the struggle, she was choked and I threw her on the floor. And Ives, who was Thomas's landlady and her mother, who lived next door, hear one single thud that sounded something like a chair falling over, but they decided just to ignore it in the moment. And Webster got busy disposing of the body next door by dismembering it, boiling it in the wash pot, and then burning the bones in the fireplace. She later explains what she had done, and this is a quote, I determined to do away with the body as best I could. I chopped the head from the body with the assistance of a razor, which I used to cut through the flesh afterwards. I also used the meat saw and the carving knife to cut the body up with. I prepared the copper with water to boil the body to prevent identity. And as soon as I succeeded in cutting it up, I placed it in the copper and boiled it. I opened the stomach with a carving knife and burned up as much of the parts as I could. It's also rumored that Webster might have offered the fat to neighbors and uh, homeless children in the form of drippings and lard, although this fact has actually never been proven. But during the next few days, Webster will keep up with the cleaning of the house and Thomas's clothing while maintaining a facade of normalcy for those who called for orders. She was concealing the severed parts of Thomas in a corded wooden bonnet box and a black Gladstone bag. She would dispose of the slain woman's head and one of her feet separately after being unable to fit them into the containers. She threw the other foot onto a nearby trash heap. 
And uh, Mrs. Thomas, who was a devoted Christian, when she's not seen at church the following two Sundays, people begin to talk. However, Webster appears to have a fresh new outlook on life. She's wearing Thomas's silk dress and carrying the Gladstone bag she had filled with parts of her remains. Webster will travel to Hammersmith on March 4th to visit her old neighbors, the Porters, who she hasn't seen in six years. She'll introduce herself as Mrs. Thomas and asserts that since their previous encounters, she had been married, given birth to a child, lost her husband, and received a house in Richmond as a gift from an aunt. Porter and his son Robert would dine with Kate at a neighborhood pub, but she did temporarily leave to go see a friend who lived nearby, and both Porters noted the large bag she carried into the tavern was missing when she came back. Later, with Robert Porter's assistance, she's able to transport a bulky box from the home to a nearby bridge, where Webster informs them that her friend would be coming to pick it up. Uh, But Robert hears a very faint splash as he begins to walk away. But when Webster catches up with him, she reassures him that her friend had already come and picked up the container, so they just continue walking. Now, that large box that the younger porter had assisted Webster in carrying did indeed hit the water when he hears the splash. Yet, it doesn't remain in its watery grave for very long. A few miles downstream along the river from where Webster had abandoned it, a coal porter will find it on March 5th at the Barnes Railway Bridge. And he's shocked when he opens it and finds mutilated contents, a woman's body and legs missing one foot. Now, a human foot and an ankle are also discovered in Twickingham at around the same time but there's nothing linking the remains to Thomas and no way to even identify them, though it is obvious that they all come from the same corpse. The medical examiner will incorrectly attribute the body parts to a young person with very black hair and the unidentified bones will be interred at Barnes Cemetery on March 19th, following an inquest that happens March 10th to 11th that leaves the cause of death open. The press will call the mysterious slaying the Barnes Mystery, amid rumors that the body had been used for anatomical research and dissection. Now remember, this time is the late 1800s. A lack of a head would prevent, in some circumstances, the identification of a body, uh, and in the inquest wasn't even able to determine the cause of death due to relatively poor forensic methods at the time. Even fingerprinting wasn't around yet. So now uh, Webster's introduced to another man whose name is John Church, and she'll meet him through her friends, the Porters. Church needs new furniture for his pub and makes Webster an offer of 68 pounds for a variety of furniture that she's selling. And that would be Thomas's furniture. And delivery vans are scheduled for March 18th. And on that day, when they do show up, at that point, Thomas has been missing for about two weeks and her neighbors had gotten worried. So when the younger Miss Ives went outside to look inside the trailers, she's informed that Mrs. Thomas is offering her furniture for sale. But when Mrs. Thomas arrives, Ives knows immediately it's not the real Mrs. Thomas, it's her servant, Webster. Now Webster will try and spin a tale about how Thomas was just away, even though she couldn't give any specific details about where. 
and she knows that at that point, the jig is up. In a fit of fright, Webster will leave with her son, taking the train to her relative's house in County Wexford, Ireland. In the meantime, the police are called. When authorities arrive, they'll find a gruesome scene when they inspect the home. There are bloodstains all over the place, some of which look like they had tried to be cleaned, burnt bones in the kitchen grate, and a fatty substance hidden under the laundry boiler. They also discover Webster's address in County Wexford. So on July 2nd, 1879, Webster is brought back to Richmond and the trial is underway. Crowds gathered inside and outside of the courtroom as the trial evolves into a great spectacle. Because of her social standing, Webster committed a particularly heinous murder for two reasons. One, she's a woman. And two, she had murdered someone of a higher social standing. Victorian conceptions of femininity, uh, they pigeonholed women as moral, docile, and simply physically incapable of killing and dismembering a body. Now, all of those values had been undermined by Webster's crime. So Webster's trial officially starts on July 2nd, 1879, and is before the Central Criminal Court. At first, Webster accuses Church and Porter of the crime. Although Thomas's possessions were discovered at Church's home and tavern, both men are exonerated because of strong alibis. Then Webster states that it's actually an ex-boyfriend named Mr. Strong, who she would periodically claim to be the father of her children, um, and he's what had driven her to commit the crime. But there is particularly damaging testimony uh, against Webster that comes from Maria Durden, a bonnet maker. And she claims that Webster had visited her the week before uh, the murder and it informed her that she was traveling to Birmingham to sell some real estate, uh, jewelry, and the home that her aunt had left her. And it only takes the jury around an hour and a half to deliberate before they come back with a guilty verdict. They actually interpret this uh, testimony from Durden as being proof that Webster had uh, planned out the murder in advance, or that it was in fact, again, premeditated. When the judge was prepared to sentence Webster shortly after the jury announced its conviction, she was questioned if there was any justification for not giving her the death penalty. And in an apparent attempt to dodge the death penalty, she claims that she's pregnant. And then something happens that I have never heard of before. Uh, the clerk of the seas eventually proposes employing the archaic method of a jury of matrons. So chosen from among the women present at the court. And they were to decide whether Webster was with quick child. So after taking the oath of office, 12 women and a doctor go with Webster to a private room for a quick examination. It was determined that Webster was not quick with child. Now, this did not necessarily imply that she wasn't pregnant. And it's because of this distinction that the president of the Obstetrical Society of London would actually object to the use of the outdated medical assumption that the unborn child is not alive until the so-called quickening. So regardless of that um, really Victorian language of medical uh, understanding, it's determined that in fact, uh, Webster's not pregnant and so therefore she can be sentenced. 
and she in fact is sentenced to death. Again, according to Vitomsky for mentalfloss.com, Webster will confess to a priest the evening before she's put to death. And she says, quote, I alone committed the murder of Mrs. Thomas. She'll be executed by hanging on July 29th at 9 a.m. at Wandsworth Prison. When hangman William Marwood utilized his recently invented long drop technique to bring about immediate death. And Marwood introduced the long drop procedure, often referred to as the measured drop in Britain in 1872, as a scientific improvement over the traditional drop. And in order to ensure that when the neck was broken, but that the individual was not beheaded, the amount of slack in the rope is calculated based on the person's height and weight rather than the traditional method, which has everyone falling at the same standard distance. So Webster is hung and then she's interred in an unmarked grave in one of the prison's exercise yards following official confirmation of her death. And a black flag is flown over the prison walls, signaling the execution of the death sentence to cheers of the waiting public outside. Again, according to O'Donnell in the book, The Trial of Kate Webster, uh, at the home of Mrs. Thomas, her belongings were put up for sale the day after Webster was put to death. In the end, Mr. Church was actually able to take possession of Thomas's furnishings, as well as a variety of other personal items, including her pocket watch and very disturbingly, the knife used to dismember her. And five shillings was paid for the copper pot that the uh, dead body had been boiled in. I really don't think I would ever purchase either of those items, but that happened. Uh, and the home itself remained vacant until 1897 because no one would live there following the murder. And even later, when it actually was occupied, the occupant claimed that staff were still very apprehensive at working at such an infamous location. And due to Webster's fame, Madame Tussauds would make a wax replica of her and display it for visitors to see in order to fulfill their desire to see the Richmond murderess. This was done only a few weeks after her arrest and well before she'd even faced trial. And it will be displayed well into the 20th century. It was actually on display with other legendary murderers like Burke and Hare or uh, Dr. Crippen both of whom we've actually already covered on this podcast. But that's actually not the end of this story, because oddly enough, this tale has a contemporary twist. Sir David Attenborough, a very famous English broadcaster and naturalist, would purchase the empty pub next to his home in 2009. And that pub actually happened to be the very same pub that at one point was Webster's favorite watering hole, the hole in the wall. But the modern day pub closed down in 2006. And it's on October 22nd, 2010, that workers would begin uh, excavating behind the old pub. And they would discover what they called the dark circular item, which was later identified to be a woman's skull. It was found on the site of the pub's stables and buried beneath foundations that had been there for at least 40 years. So the coroner requests that uh, Richmond police conduct an investigation into the identity and circumstances of the owner of the skull, because it's almost instantly assumed that the skull probably belonged to Mrs. Thomas. 
So the skull was carbon dated at the University of Edinburgh, and since it was found on top of a layer of Victorian tiles, uh, they thought it was very likely uh, that it came from the end of the Victorian era. Carbon dating placed the skull between 1650 and 1880. The skull was also examined and determined to have low collagen levels, which is comparable with it having been boiled. And the fracture marks are consistent with Webster's description of throwing Thomas down the stairs. So the coroner comes to the conclusion that it is indeed Thomas's skull in July of 2011. But since Thomas had no children and they couldn't find any living relatives, DNA testing was just never an option. So the coroner replaces the open verdict from 1879 with a verdict of unlawful killing. Thomas's death is attributed to suffocation and a head injury. And the conclusion, according to the police, is a good illustration of how good old-fashioned detective work, historical records, and technology advancements came together to solve the Barnes mystery. And that brings us officially to the end of this episode. If you've enjoyed it, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a case suggestion, you can find us on Instagram at historical true crime pod, or you can reach us by email at historical true crime pod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark case from history. We'll see you then.